This episode is brought to you in part by Zondervan, publisher of Ghosted, an American story, written and narrated by New York Times best-selling ghostwriter Nancy French, and is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. Dynamic voices for a diverse church. This is Pass the Mic. Greetings and God bless. Welcome to another episode of Pastor Mike, Dynamic Voices for a Diverse Church, powered by the Reformed African American Network. I am your host for this podcast, Tyler Burns. You can follow me on Twitter at Burns23. Uh, as always, we have our president and the co-founder of the Reformed African American Network with us, Jamar Tisby. Jamar, what is going on today? It is another episode of Pass the Mic, but it's not just another episode. We have an incredibly special guest with us, Colin Hansen from the Gospel Coalition. Welcome, Colin. Oh, thanks for having me, guys. This is long overdue, brother. Um, my goodness, I think since two... Th- well, first of all, I've been a longtime reader for many, many, many years and have learned a ton from you guys and from all the writers that you have there. But you all have played a pivotal role in the history of RAN, and I'm not sure all of our listeners know this, but um, you all gave us a shot. You took a shot. You took a gamble on us when, when we were, weren't known, and um, I submitted some posts to you all, and you put those up, and you have invited us to your national conferences and given us space there and, and opportunities to present. So we are indebted, and I just want to formally thank you and the Gospel Coalition for all your support of the Reformed African American Network and Pass the Mic. Oh, Jamar, that means a lot to me. I'll never forget. It was 2013, right? Our first national conference right. in Orlando, and we gave you guys this little workshop room and thought, well, let's see what happens, and put it really early in the morning. <laughs> Super And then early. all of a sudden, just everybody just descends on this little room, and everybody's sitting in the aisles, and I don't even have a space inside <laughs> the room, so I'm having to look at you from out in the hallway and, and just uh, seeing you in your element, Jamar, and that was, a, that was just an exciting moment for me, and it's been simply a, a pleasure to see how the Lord has grown, ran, and you personally over the years, so this really is a is a special moment for me to be talking with you guys. Well, yeah, yes. go ahead. And, and I just I actually just wanted to say I was there in that, that <laughs> room That's in awesome. 2013, and if not for that, I don't think I'd be with Rand today. So that was Amen. the time where I, where I actually it was my second conversation with Jamar. I had a previous conversation with him at another conference, but it was a time where they really wrote me in and said you need to write for us, and then the rest is history. Amen. Yes, so it all started there. Appreciate you all. So tell us about your role at TGC. What's your title and kind of what are your day-to-day responsibilities? Uh, My job is editorial director. I've been in that position since July of 2010. Um, I kind of just made up the title. So (laughs) that tells you a little bit about how I came on board at TGC, uh, a pretty pretty small organization, uh, just sort of fledgling at the time with our editorial efforts. We had a couple bloggers, well-known, Justin Taylor and Kevin DeYoung in particular at the time, and uh, came in to just try to expand that editorial reach. And then since then, we've kind of grown the number of editors that we have involved and the amount of material that we publish. Um, So I also oversee our book publishing and our curriculum, also the, the programming for our conferences, and just very other, various other things that relate to TGC's mission of trying to reform our ministry practices to conform to Scripture. That's the overall purpose that we serve. And it's trying to keep that gospel center at the center, that story, that message of Jesus Christ, that He comes to save sinners and intercedes now on our behalf. We're trying to keep that, that central. And so that's it's kind of my job to navigate those waters, to make sure the, the content continues to reflect that message but then it's my job also then to, to see, to oversee how that message gets out and how we apply that in various different ways with the hundreds of writers that we have involved and our different bloggers and things like that. So we end up getting into a lot of different issues, a lot of controversial issues. And one of the things I've noticed is that if you're seeking to be controversial, um, just keep focused on Jesus. Because he was controversial, yep. and he he offended different people at different times. So we don't judge our faithfulness depending on how we offend people, but no, at the same time, neither do we think that if we're offending people that somehow we've betrayed Jesus. In fact, he promised that that is exactly what would happen if we're following him. And so as it relates to any issues, political or racial or economic or sexual 
um, you stay focused on Jesus, that's, that's going to be, it's going to be controversial. So in my job, that's part of what I do in overseeing our editorial staff and working with our writers is to, is to try to keep us all focused on that message. That sounds like the lesson you've learned in the school of hard knocks. <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, I, you know, I'd like to think Jamar that I learned it early on, but I remember vividly there was a moment I was speaking at our 2015 national conference which, with a group of our writers, and one of our one of our best writers asked me a question, um, and it was, "How do you respond to the criticism that the Gospel Coalition is so political?" Hmm. And I said, that's an interesting critique because I only hear it when we talk about certain issues, namely those political issues that the person raising the issue, raising the problem, doesn't like. And so I've never run into anybody who's complained for me being political as it relates to abortion or same-sex marriage or things like that. It's when I talk about other stuff like money or race, or things like that, all of a sudden I get criticized for being political, or the Gospel Coalition in general gets uh, uh, criticized for that. And so a lot of that, you're right, Jamar, it has been learned in the School of Hard Knocks to recognize that you're not going to keep everybody happy, but you've got to, if, if you can't stay grounded in Jesus, you're going to get blown by the winds, and that can, you never know where that's going to end up, and you're just not going to be able to survive that criticism personally. So that's a little bit of what I'm going through just right now. And I don't claim to actually do it well all of the time because I'm a sinner who needs grace and is growing in my own sanctification um, by the Spirit, hopefully. But it's just one of those things that without this vantage point at TGC, I might not have been able to see in precisely the same way. Now, you you wrote an article actually coming up in September of this year. It's going to be as we're talking offline, a 10-year anniversary of an article that you wrote with a term that has become pretty much common in our lexicon in American Christianity, and that's young, restless, and reformed. So 10 years ago, you wrote this article, hard to believe now, it's been a decade, and so many of us have been influenced by this term and the thoughts that you have given surrounding the term. So, so what has the transition been, and how has it been different since the day you wrote that article to 2016? Oh man, so many different things are, uh, so many different things. One of them I just wanted to say first off is that when I wrote that article, a lot of people, especially older people, thought that I was crazy and that I was making it up. So I specifically got feedback <laughs> right. from institutional leaders within the evangelical world saying, this isn't a real thing. You're just, this is a fixation of your imagination. So I'll never forget wow. the parking lot outside of the condo uh, where I lived in Illinois at the time, talking with my wife, and I looked at her and I said, is it true? Am I making it all up? Is this maybe even wishful thinking on my part? And for journalists, those are, those are real questions that you have to always ask yourself. Well, nobody's asking that question <laughs> anymore. It's certainly a real thing, um, and if anything, continues to grow 10 years later. Um, at the same time, there have been a lot of growth pains, a lot of growth pains. And one of the biggest differences is that I remember looking and seeing some of these movements, especially the, a, lot of, a lot of the dynamic movements of church planting in urban areas. And I remember thinking, this is either going to be one of the most amazing revivals uh, that God has ever sent us in the United States of America or it's going to be a complete disaster. And I guess it's probably been both. Um, I mean, wow, yeah. which I guess is kind of how things always work. Yep. Um, right. I mean, the Lord is doing amazing things that we wouldn't have thought possible 10 years ago, especially in urban cultures. And also some of it's been a disaster. <laughs> so um, that's just kind of, um, you know, that's just part of what I've learned to learn to deal with and, uh, and try to describe. So if I thought about going back and writing the article again, you know, there, I really couldn't do it. It's a totally different situation now. There's no surprise factor, but there's also very much a heavy, like, wait a minute, what happened to all these different people that you wrote about 10 years ago? What happened? You know, where did they go? Well, I mean, there have been a lot of ministry failures. Um, there have been just a lot of a lot of people who, some people were reformed because it was a fad, and they were reformed because it was their way of getting back at the church that they didn't like growing up. 
Well, and they grew out of that, and now they don't like reformed people. <laughs> so there's a lot of those factors, and definitely one of the biggest one of the biggest changes is um, there. One, the, this Young Justice Reform movement is significantly more ethnically diverse, um, maybe in reality, but certainly also in perception. Um, I did hint at reformed uh, hip hop in in my not in my original article. I wasn't mm-hmm. aware of it then, but in my original book in 2008. Um, but that dynamic has been has been um, has to become a much bigger factor. But as that diversity has come along, then also you've seen a lot more tension um, mm-hmm. because it's exposed a lot of the I think idols in our culture, including in our church culture, culture including among Reformed Christians. So those are a lot of things that ten years ago, Tyler, I could not really have anticipated when I wrote that article, and would have been way beyond the scope of my 6,000-word investigation for Christianity Today. So, so go ahead, go ahead, Jamar. I'm just curious how you parse, I mean, I mean, the term young, restless, and reformed. I think the young is pretty straightforward. The reformed, for folks who are listening, probably understandable. What's the restless part? And, and is that still, you know, is that still the word you would use to describe it today? Yeah, the restless part, I think that was really the key, um, because it wasn't really clear how this was going to play out. It wasn't really, I mean, a lot of these folks were Baptists calling themselves Reformed. Like, how is that going to work out uh, when Reformed is often referred specifically to Presbyterian denominations, at least in people's minds? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, how, how would, when these people grow up, would, would this movement not merely be a reaction to something? A lot of people have, I think, accurately described the movement as in part a reaction against two different things. One, a lot of the megachurch models of ministry that especially white Reformed evangelicals grew up with. And second, against emergent style um, liberalism resuscitated from earlier movements. So again, coming out of some evangelical worlds, but predominantly white. Um, And so it wasn't quite clear at the time, is this just a reactionary movement? And in some ways, it has been a reactionary movement. And in some ways, it's also actually settled down. So it's a little little less restless because now it's a little bit more institutional. Mm-hmm. Um, at the time, there was a ministry called the Gospel Coalition that had just started, but it wasn't exerting any of the sort of influence that it does now. And so, yeah, it's, it's – and also, I look at some of these other things. At the time, within the Southern Baptist Convention – it was anything but clear whether or not the Calvinists would be able to stay mm. within that denomination or if they'd get kicked out. Hmm. Well, now a lot of the people who've been associated this mo- with this movement at, in- at varying degrees, people who are on the Gospel Coalition's council like Russell Moore, Al Mohler, and David Platt, well, they are the leaders of the Southern Baptist Convention. Yeah. And so I don't think, I mean, that restlessness found an institutional home. And they actually, in many ways, became the authority. And so, yeah, in some ways, it, it, it has grown up. And in some ways, it's still restless trying to find its way. And in some ways, it stayed restless and, you know, crashed. <laughs> burned. Right. So it's really all over the map. Now, let me ask you this. As we talk about the maturation of the, the young, restless, and reformed movement, Uh, One of the things that also gained its height over the last decade is social media and the interaction there. How have you guys managed uh, keeping up with the social media generation? And and what are some of the things that that you found to be helpful about that, but also to be a hindrance as well to true and pure gospel ministry? Yeah, social media is a great question, Tyler. Social media is a two-edged sword. So without social media, and keep in mind, this was a, a pretty prominent part of, of my original book um, that came out in 2008, was dealing with the rise of blogs. Now, Facebook was not nearly the factor um, then as it is now. Twitter really wasn't much of a factor at all. That really changes the game. That's part of the double-edged sword thing. But but the first part is simply without this way of connecting through ministries online like the Reformed African American Network, through podcasting and things like that, people who were feeling isolated and discouraged and wondering if they were a little bit crazy about holding to these beliefs would, have, would, have, would, have, would not have been able to find like-minded believers to gain encouragement. So mm-hmm. that's been a major factor. This just would not have happened. And so uh, so in the Gospel Coalition and places like that, as time has gone along, we've continued to 
to grow in social media, to create those communities. And it's been, it's been a major factor. I just can't imagine what anything would look like without Twitter and Facebook and what we're trying to do. Um, when you're trying to build an audience, it's amazing. The, there are these low barriers to entry now that you don't need huge amounts of capital to buy all this stuff and distribute all this stuff. You can just ramp up to speed almost right away. And that's, and that's, the, that's the problem as well. The problem is that we are in part because of technology and in part because of philosophy. They really merge in places like social media. Um, it, is, it is a radically democratic medium. And as it's radically democratic, it's also um, very hostile, uh, cruel, uh, yeah, occasionally uh, wonderfully encouraging. It's just it's all wrapped up in one medium. And so the same way that you're able to distribute good content that you try to edify people with or even critical content to help people to think more biblically and with, with theological soundness to these trends in the culture – it's the same way that other people who really hate what you're trying to do can attack you. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so you live by the sword, you die by the sword. Right. And, you know, I don't know that there's any way to, to really um, avoid that. And I'm not sure we're ever going to be able to put that, you know, put Pandora back in the box. Um, it's been, I mean, Pandora's box has been opened there. Um, and, uh, and it's just something that you, you have to deal with. If you can't handle that criticism that I was referring to earlier, um, it's going to be very difficult to be a writer and it's going to be very difficult to deal with any sort of current events. Unless of course you've just created a worldview where you're always right and everybody else is always wrong, which actually seems to be a pretty popular posture. (laughs) Yes, we've found that. And, and (laughs) you know, you've actually done something about it. Uh, you've written a book called Blind Spots and How to Become a Courageous, Compassionate, I'm just trying to uh, uh, remember, and Commissioned Church, Um, which is interesting, right? Uh, You didn't say Christian, you said church. Why was that? Very interesting. So I believe that building off especially Paul's letter to to the Corinthians, his first letter to the Corinthians, that we've all been gifted to be part of a body, that that you you actually value the the least important in the world's eyes members of that body more than the others, and I believe that as God brings us as God brings us together in His church, He He, he gifts us differently precisely so that we can compensate for where our brothers and sisters are weak, or where they're simply not knowledgeable, or where they're struggling. And so, what I wrote the book to be on like three different levels. So one level is you could look at it as a Christian and say. Maybe God has especially gifted me to be courageous, but that doesn't give me a pass to never be compassionate or to never be evangelistic to fulfill the Great Commission. Because after all, Jesus gives those to all Christians, and as, insofar as the Spirit of Jesus dwells within us, then we have the power to be able to do these things. But at the same time, maybe in a church, I'm, I'm really going to run the mercy ministry because I love being able to help the people who are down and out. Well, maybe I'm not going to be the kind of person then who is going to to stand up and to teach on difficult issues in our culture. But I shouldn't look down on that person. I should recognize that in the body of Christ, he's gifted other people differently because all of these different aspects relate to Jesus. Well, then on the other hand, if you're somebody who loves to be able to just hang around with unbelievers and share the love of God with them and to tell Mm -hmm. them about Jesus— Well, that doesn't mean then that somebody over there who's really strong theologically, who loves to study and build up the church, is somehow then lesser than you because they don't have the same evangelistic gift that you have. So my thought is, in our worst, we're just going to sit in our little corners and just scream at each other over social media or fight over each other in congregational meetings or we're going to develop these different camps online and we're just going to lob grenades at each other from our safe enclaves while the people in our little corner cheer us and encourage us. Mm. I mean, either we're going to do that or we're going to follow the way of Jesus and all of us are going to be exposed to some blind spots that we just, we didn't know that they were there. We didn't realize that, Oh wait, I was projecting all of my fears and my strengths onto other people who don't share them. They have different strengths and they have different weaknesses only together in the church, empowered by the Spirit, the same Spirit, one faith, one church, one baptism. Only in that, in that body are we going to be able to together 
uh, reflect the fullness of Jesus Christ and his intent for the, for the church, of which he is the head. So it was really born a lot out of my experiences watching debates on social media, seeing mm-hmm. things in churches, and hoping that we can be mutually encouraging to one another rather than feeling self-affirmed in our criticism of other people for just being, you know, basically, thank God I'm not like those other people out there. Right. Now, we had the, the privilege of taking your, uh, I guess, uh, scientific <laughs> poll uh, quiz uh, with, with determining that. what our strengths are. And yep. um, so mine was commissioned and then the other okay. two are tied. And Jamar, what was yours? Mine, I was the. It was a tie between compassionate and courageous, and Got then, it. so so, so I, we're in perfect balance here. At, <laughs> that's, that's basically <laughs> what we're trying to say. I forget what Bose was was uh, Jamar. Maybe he can he can chime in and tell you, uh, flag you down and, and tell you what it was. But I think we're in perfect balance here. But he's I actually wanted to talk yeah, he's about a big that idea. This whole idea of. The balance between all these things, between courage, compassion, commission, are these things, is it is it kind of a false idea to imagine that we can be perfectly balanced? Like, what are the pros and cons of having a strong lean to one or the other and maybe a perceived weakness or lack of one or two of the other categories? Is that healthy or are we should we pushing toward this this balance between all three of them and maybe and maybe even um just a quick like rundown of what it means in in your taxonomy uh to be courageous compassionate or commissioned yeah and well i'll just yeah run through it quickly so courageous is basically the willing be willing to stand up for jesus and not to not to feel like you have to not to be swayed by the culture, not to be swayed by criticism. Compassion is a desire to be able to minister to to the poor, to the widow, to the homeless, things like that, to be able to, you know, the hands and feet of Jesus Christ out there to minister with, with the hands of healing. Commission is to, is to go and to become all things to all men that you might save some, in the, you know, like an apostle sent out to try to spread that message. So I, I kind of, I set them out, they're all strengths, but there's a corresponding weakness. So if you could just run through them quickly, the courageous, they tend to be jerks sometimes. Um, they tend to just not. There you go, Jamar. You know, they, there you yeah. go, man. All, well, I mean, it's the, it's, the, it's the inclination in our heart, our sinful hearts for all of us. The compassionate, they tend to downplay doctrine in ways that are really mm-hmm. damaging and think the world would love us if we would just not be so mean by holding these mean beliefs. So they tend to want to say that the problem with the the problem with with the world's uh, view of Christians is Christians, namely those courageous people over there, and the commission right. folks they tend to they tend to want to say, well I'm just I'm just not interested in getting into all of those specifics that just gets in the way of people. So they tend to be again kind of like the the com- compassionate people they tend to be swayed by culture. But it's not necessarily because they're trying to be um, they're trying to be compassionate. It might be because they're just trying to be popular. Mm-hmm. And so you think then sometimes of the big mega churches that have watered down. Not not saying that all mega churches have done that, but some specifically that have watered down the message of Jesus Christ. So that's the basic. Those are the basic three different groups. But the way it works in terms of balance is I actually Tyler try to avoid that term because it right. makes it feel like. I could be a little bit of this and a little bit of that and a little bit of this. And I'm thinking, is that what Jesus was like? Like, Would you think of him as being a little courageous when the time called for it and a little compassionate when the time called for it and a little bit commissioned when he needed to be? No, he was all of these things at all time. And no, I mean, I don't think any one of us, because we're not Jesus and because we're sinners, um, this side of glory— um, none of us is going to be perfect in that regard. But if we take seriously what 1 Corinthians 12 and, and other passages say, then we ought to be able to reflect reflect the fullness of Christ in ways that are going to be very encouraging to other believers and are going to even appeal to the world. And so I don't think this is impossible. I actually think that if you look out there in the landscape of Christian leadership, some leaders you'll be able to look at and say, you know what? Now I think I know why John Perkins is so popular. 
because I actually think he embodies all of these things. Hmm. And you look over there and you say, oh, well, Tim Keller is, you know, he plants a bunch of churches. He's a confessional Presbyterian who stands for biblical truth in difficult place. And he also writes a lot about deacons and started a big ministry mercy in New York City. Maybe that's why he's so influential and why so many people who are very different are drawn uh, to him as a leader. And simultaneously, it's also a way to look out there and say, oh, I see these other leaders who always are hitting the same note. And I wonder, what do they do with the rest of Scripture? Mm. Like, why are they always quoting Romans? Why are they Mm. never quoting James? Or vice versa, why do they only quote from the Sermon on the Mount, but they never go to Revelation? Well, this this is part of what I'm trying to do in the book as well, to give you a way of saying, oh, maybe it's because they're really only appealing to a certain aspect of Jesus and they're trying to convince other people that that's okay. But the only way you can convince yourself that that's okay is if you're comparing yourself to other people who have similar or even different problems instead of comparing yourself to Jesus. Mm. Because it just won't fly mm. when you compare yourself to Jesus. It's a beautiful thing about following him. He's going to convict you of your sin, but then meet you in that place with his grace. And I think that's what's so important about saying saying this is is part of the church and not just being a Christian who is one or, like you said, all of these, which really doesn't work. It's it's really only in the community of believers that we can exhibit all of these kinds of strengths and um, conversely offset the, the weaknesses and the blind spots, hence the title, I suppose, uh, that we would all have given our particular proclivities uh, in this in this. Um, you know, tripartite framework that you've come up with. So I thought that was a a brilliant move. It simultaneously reinforces the importance of the body in general, but also specifically um, it affirms, like, if you are courageous or compassionate or commissioned, that's good, but then you need other people to help come alongside you and say, here's some ways you might want to be careful because uh, your strengths can also be your greatest weaknesses. So I appreciated that about the book. Um, And I think it comes at a very timely point in our nation, right? So we're in the presidential election cycle right now as we speak. It looks like Donald Trump will be the presumptive nominee for the Republican Party and Hillary Clinton uh, for, for the Democrats. And Christians, particularly evangelical Christians, so defined, are s- stuck between a rock and a hard place. Um, a lot of people are saying it's not really even a choice between lesser evils, but they are both two very great evils in the sense of they a Christian um, would not feel very their conscience would be bound by voting for either one of them. And so, I mean, I'm just wondering if, if you know, blind spots as a framework applies to this or just even your general thoughts on Christians engaging in the presidential political cycle right now. Yeah, I guess, Jamar, I haven't sold nearly as many copies as I wanted to because maybe the election <laughs> wouldn't have turned out this way. Yeah, um, right. Not that right. any one book can do anything like that, but you're exactly right to be able to draw the connection. I mean, I guess I wrote this before imagining that anything like this could happen. I suppose I expected that Hillary Clinton would be the Democratic nominee, but I would not have in my wildest dreams, be able to imagine that Donald Trump would be the Republican nominee. Um, And that lasted for a long time, even when I thought that, I mean, even when polls showed him consistently ahead, and even when I started hearing from a lot of people about how much they loved Donald Trump, and just caught back like, wait, what? I mean, how how is that even possible? But I think we're all so habituated, Jamar, to seeing some seeing other people's problems to see the log in other people's i mean the speck in other people's eyes and not the log in ours and so we've seen this in i mean when was the i don't know that we can remember another presidential election where i mean it just seems like we have we've come to the point where we expect that we're not voting for a candidate we're voting against the other candidate and so it seems to be, we seem to be content to say, I know my guy is, is a jerk, but their guy's a bigger jerk. Hmm. 
And we just seem to be okay with that. And we have entire cable networks that are designed to do that. We have entire social media accounts that are dedicated to this, websites that do this. We have entire talk radio that does this. And I don't think, I mean, I I guess my, my thesis really hit home as a Republican or as a former Republican watching this nomination with Donald Trump play out where I realized, oh my, like this is so ingrained in our political system, even among many Christians, that it's, it's enough to, I mean, it's enough to just say the other person is terrible, that you can overlook everything that's horrible about your own candidate. And that there's no way of anybody to be able to even argue reasonably with you. And in fact, you watch all these debates and nobody seems to be offering arguments at all to begin with. And you realize, my goodness, like we're all, I mean, where is Jesus? Like for the Christians at least, where is Jesus to be able to say, like, I'm going to stand with that guy over here. I'm I'm not going to stand, even if I voted with this party you know, year after year after year. And even if I think I had some good reasons, like I'm going to stand with Jesus because I'll tell you this, I don't expect my candidate, my candidate to be perfectly godly. I'm not electing a pastor in chief, but I would expect some at least minimal standards of decency and truth and honesty. Mm -hmm. There's something that has seriously gone wrong in our discipleship. If we believe that it's, it's, it's okay to simply hate other people, as a way of confirming us in our own righteousness. And I guess I shouldn't have been, Jamar, as surprised as I was or that I am about that because I wrote the book because of a deficit, not that I saw in our politics, though it certainly applies, but in our churches. Mm -hmm. So I guess I shouldn't have been surprised that the very churches that I wrote this book to are the very churches that have helped to deliver us this choice between Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump. Well, I think you're being good company with folks who are surprised and would never have predicted the current climate that we're in right now. Um, It's been interesting for me as an African-American looking at particularly what's happening with the GOP, because um, ethnic minorities and particularly black people have, I don't think, ever really had a significant place uh, with the Republican Party, at least not since the latter half of the 20th century on up till now. And so I'm just, I I feel like in this... Not since 60. Right, right. Right, right. And so I felt like an outsider looking in, I'm just like, okay, well, um, what are y'all going to say and do about this? And hoping that this would be a real big moment of introspection, which it is, but it seems to me like... And, and I'm just, you know, I'm just talking from Jamar's perspective here. It seems to me like even with so so back in 2012, when they lost, uh, when the Republicans lost the White House again, there was this big report, you know, basically autopsy of the Republican Party. And one of the main outcomes of that report was we need to be broader and um, incorporate the concerns of ethnic minorities into our platform more intentionally and more compassionately. And that report really, in my view, didn't change much about how the party operated. And then here comes Trump, who is verbally um, antagonizing almost the, the latent racism in America and saying blatantly racist things. And even that, it, 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 it's still a long, slow uphill climb, particularly for, um, I guess you would say, establishment Republicans to say, hey, wait a minute, now we really need to take into consideration um, the concerns of ethnic minorities and make sure that uh, the Democrats aren't the only ones who are talking about these kinds of things. I mean, from your perspective, especially as a Christian uh, who was in the Republican Party, in terms of its its sort of insight into uh, ethnic minority concerns, where is the party now? How has How has this election impacted that? Yeah, let me let me give you give you some context there. So, 2002, uh, first election I voted in was 2000. Voted for George W. Bush, and um, you know, seemed like a 
seemed like a good thing. Um, I mean, of course, this is one of the most outspoken born again candidates that we've seen in presidential history. Um, in two, 2001, the attacks of September 11th happened in my junior year, or actually before my junior year of college. I went after that summer, and I worked uh, worked on Capitol Hill. I was working with the chair of the House Republican Conference, J.C. Watts, so one of the leaders of the Republican Republican House. And I was uh, he was a member of the Homeland Security Committee at the time. That's part of the reason I went out there to work. I also raised money with um, the Republican National committee and which was across the street from where I worked and my best friend there was an, an Indian American whose dad had immigrated from from India so I was working at the time for the only black Republican in Congress and then also uh, working with other Republicans who are ethnic minorities in this case um, this was I mean I even actually we our office now that I reflect back on it um, one of the might have been the first black SGA president at Ole Miss mm. Um, I worked with, uh, worked with another Asian American, like, so my exposure to the Republican party was that these were the folks who were standing up for a lot of the concerns I had as an evangelical, including, uh, abortion, marriage, things like that. But that also it was a place that was seeking, um, that didn't have a good track record since the 1960s, but maybe that that was an aberration and that the legacy we were dealing with was truly the Lincoln legacy and the legacy of people who all the way through Jackie Robinson uh, were outspoken Republicans at least for a time um, and so that was that was my that was my background um, that's obviously obviously I was myself a minority as I look back now and I don't think I could have seen without Donald Trump's candidacy how core white resentment is to Republican identity, whether in an explicit way, which Trump seems more than content to be explicit <laughs> about, but even in implicit ways. And now that, I, now that I reflect back on history, you realize that, well, there's always been a party that reflects whites in America. That, that it, I mean, whether related to immigration, related to minority rights, like there's always been a party that seems to be the one that stands up for white people and whatever their perceived grievances might be or whatever their perceived or whatever their what are their assumed privileges of being the, the people who are truly America. Um, and I, I can't imagine anything better than Donald Trump's candidacy to be able to expose that uh, that core um, to Republican Party appeal, because um, you and I have talked about this before, Jamar, but two things are striking to me. One, that to make the economic appeal to Donald Trump, you have to and say, well, maybe he's just speaking to the issues of poorer whites, uh, lower middle class whites, um, in a way that other Republicans, especially Mitt Romney, were not able to. Well, in one sense, I'd actually be pretty sympathetic with economic arguments that would not toe the line of big business that Mitt Romney did. I thought that was a major mistake in Mitt Romney's campaign. Um, and, I mean, in part, I come from lower middle class, middle class uh, Midwest on a farm. So I'm not, I'm not one of those people who grew up rich in a suburb or a city or something like that. So I'm open to that. But if that's the case, then why, are, why is he getting no support from – other poorer people, especially ethnic minorities, and why is the average mm. Trump supporter household income about seventy thousand mm. dollars? It just doesn't seem to doesn't seem to add up there. And here's the other issue that you and I have talked about, Jamar. Um, Republicans seem to have had no problem with Donald Trump throwing all of their other party orthodoxy out the window. So, I mean, so on health care, on abortion, whatever else he might want to say about being pro-life, on marriage, on transgender issues, on taxes, on trade, on war and, and the military, on like, tell me, what area has he not thrown out the window from like GOP orthodoxy? Mm -hmm. Well, he's basically ignored everything except for those things that seem to relate to ethnic minorities, especially things like immigration. 
you know, we could have a good debate about immigration and talk about different aspects of policy, but that's not what Donald Trump is inviting us mm-hmm. to. He's encouraging an outright us versus them racism, which essentially says that people who look that way are trying to take what belongs to you. I mean, that's not an immigration yes. policy. Right. Uh, that, that's merely appealing to racism. And so I don't know how to interpret Trump's candidacy except to say that it's reflective of, well, that it's an eye-opening experience for me that indicates that I can no longer be, um, be associated with this Republican Party. And I'll give you an example. So I have a friend of mine, one of my wife's best friends from, from college. Um, she's, uh, she's Jewish and, and an activist on immigration, especially for uh, Latin American, South American immigration policies. She's uh, significantly more liberal than I am on every issue, including on the immigration issue. And when Trump's candidacy came around, she reached out to me and, uh, and to my wife and asked what we thought about hmm. this. And I knew something very clear in what she was saying. She was asking us, I have never agreed with you guys about politics or your faith and what you say about Jesus Christ, but I've always respected you. And I've always believed that I can trust you and that you are good people. So I, I had a, it was a pretty, it was a pretty clear issue there for me of saying whatever else I might've wanted to say about my faith in Jesus Christ, there was simply no way that I could retain any credibility whatsoever in the eyes of this friend. If I thought that being a disciple of Jesus Christ was consistent for advocating for Donald Trump's candidacy. Mm. Mm. And for, so for me, wow. guys, this is an issue of, of my evangelistic integrity, not because of some kind of liberal, conservative thing, not because of Supreme Court appointees or whatever else the people who listen to this um, I'm sure are going to bring up and hold against me. But actually, it's about – Colin, I see you talking about this man, Jesus Christ, over here. And I see who this man over here is in Donald Trump, and they don't seem to have anything in common with one another. I'm not asking you to vote for Hillary Clinton or Bernie Sanders, but I'm just asking you, does that work Mm. as a Christian? I'm telling you guys, maybe other people will come to a different conclusion. It doesn't work Mm. for me. doesn't work. It doesn't work. Is it a question of degrees though uh, i mean what is the difference so so maybe donald trump is the volume turned up to 10 and they broke the knob off right. but are other candidates the volumes turned up to five and well that's yeah i i think i mean that's that's why i don't believe i can support a republican party that makes its peace with donald trump mm. because to make its peace with donald trump is to tell me that whatever else they said and believed was a lie that they identify with his core message, which is what we've just described right there. So I might have argued with you before, Jamar, about that, and I might might have argued for the integrity of a lot of men um, and women I really respected in the Republican Party, but to see them say nothing, Hmm. nothing in critique of Donald Trump, and to then announce that they will publicly support him is not an offense that I can forgive, um, at least in terms of those party allegiances. And I believe then for the sake of my testimony as a Christian, really for the sake of my own integrity, it's just not something I can associate with. So I need to pick a time here to officially disaffiliate um, with the Republican Party um, I always knew this moment might come, and I actually had told all of my friends that I thought the Republican Party would disappear as we knew it after this election. Um, I just didn't think it would be quite this way. Um, My thought was that the social conservatives are not enough in today's America to be able to win for the Republican Party, so that they would have to get rid of the social conservatives um, to be able to to try to build a different coalition. And what I expected is that the Republicans would actually try to outflank the Democrats to the left on any number of issues, including social issues, hmm. and try to build a more consistently 
libertarian and selfish, I think, in a lot of ways, um, approach, mm. which is the opposite of what I would hope that they would have done there. And so I expected to be a man without a home um, and without a party, but um, it, didn't ha- it didn't happen quite the way that I thought it would. And the surprise to me has been that Republicans have been so willing, elected Republican officials have been so willing to yep. go along with it with so little resistance. That's the one thing. And second, that it turns out the Republicans won't have to get rid of social conservatives because mm. apparently the social conservatives will tolerate anything and they'll just vote because the person has an R next to his name. And so apparently now the Republicans will be able to try a different strategy where they can just ignore any social conservative issues and then try to reach out to different kinds of people through, I guess, the theatrics and the vulgarity. I don't, I mean, I don't think there'll be another candidate like Trump to come around next time, but I certainly don't expect other candidates to, to imagine that things like honesty or integrity or honor or courage or fidelity are important because if social conservatives don't think they're important, then why should anybody else think they're important? Sorry, guys, I could keep man, ranting on that for a long no time. Go in, jump in. <laughs> yeah, no, I think that's, man, that's very helpful to hear. Now, you're talking about what you're disassociating from, but what are you now going to associate with and to? Um, how do we reflect Christ as you say, hey, I'm going to stand with Jesus? How do we reflect Christ in an environment like this where it feels as though for many social conservatives or many people who are voting in general, there's no home, there's no affiliation on earth. So so how do we cope and how do we manage and what are some things you're doing to deal with that that whiplash? Yeah, I mean that's a it's an open question. I'm I'm open to counsel and, and to and to, to leadership on, on these things. Um, it's been a hard it's been a hard time. Um, just as somebody who's voted Republican, as somebody who, who thought, um, I mean, just thought of things a certain way, like I don't, I don't agree with the Republican Party on everything, but I think abortion is such an important issue that I, I've been very defensive because I've thought, well, but we have to have at least one party because Democrats have abandoned social conservatives. They didn't used to be that way either, but they've entirely abandoned social conservatives. And I, I think there it was a real watershed moment in 2012 when, um, uh, in 2012, when the Democratic National Convention was unashamedly pro-abortion. I do not say that lightly. I'm not saying pro-choice. I'm saying pro-abortion. It was another eye-opening thing for me. And so if the Republicans are not going to offer a viable alternative to that, which they obviously won't, then I don't have a place to go because I'm not going to shift over to the Democratic Party for that reason. Um, I'd be open to any number of views that the Democrats might hold on foreign policy or economic policy or immigration or things like that. Um, I mean, I, I might be open if they cared what I thought, but they don't. But I guess that's the thing either. No, Republicans obviously don't care what I think either. I'm not saying that they should. I mean, of course, I'd want that. I'm just, I'm just trying to reflect the political reality. I spoke up and there aren't many of me. So I don't have a home anymore. I mean, if, if, if the Republicans can do this and they don't need me, then they'll just move on. And I need to figure out what to do from there. There's a new book called uh, Fractured Republic that I'm reading about right now from somebody who worked in the Bush administration. Um, and uh, really what it's talking about is the problem with our national political discourse and the the is the vitriol going back and forth and the obsession, like the stakes are just too high. The stakes are too high for our national politics. And so what can we do to de-escalate things and turn our attention toward the families, communities, churches, social institutions that are closer to us to try to do some good? And Tyler, that's basically what I'm trying to do now is to turn my attention toward those um, those relationships and those institutions that I that I have um, that I have some leadership and responsibility for, namely, you know, my, my own soul, for my family, my household, my church, my community, my city, um, and things like that. So I'm I'm trying to. I don't really know what. I mean, I look at the abortion issue and I say, 
Like this is going to end badly. I don't believe in my lifetime there will ever be either party that will advocate for the lives of the unborn from here on out, at least on a national level. I don't think once the Republicans have nominated a pro-choice, well, basically, I mean, assumed to be a pro-choice candidate because his pro-life argumentation is completely unbelievable in Donald Trump, that they will ever go back from that um, once that fear factor is gone from offending social conservatives. So I don't really know what to do. I'm just assuming all these things related to religious liberty and marriage and abortion at the, at the Supreme Court level and at the national level will simply be lost. Um, I don't really know that there's anything I can do about that. Um, and so I'm just trying to turn my attention toward, toward those things that are closer to me and to try to build up those institutions to be able to love others. And it's also another thing that I'll say, I think maybe especially relevant to this podcast, I live as, as, um, as probably some people know in the deep south in Birmingham, Alabama, and uh, I've lived here for four years. Um, I've spent a lot of time over the last number of years of truly trying to understand what, what this city is all about and understand its history, the good and also especially the bad. And so one of the things that I see this as an opportunity to be able now that now that I'm personally broken out of this two-party structure is to revisit certain issues and to revisit certain relationships. Now that we're not encumbered by this this national political hmm. uh, red versus blue dynamic, to say, what are some new solutions that we might be able to to seek? What is what are some conversations? were able to have. I was talking with an, with an African-American brother not, not long ago, and I was mentioning my serious concern about abortion. And he started talking to me about uh, health care as a, as a life issue and things like that. And I could tell that maybe in some ways he was reflexive of, used to, uh, of, of, being, of, of arguing with white evangelicals a lot about abortion and being frustrated with their perspective. And I tried to stop him and say, hey, I'm actually not arguing with you about health care. I'm not trying to tell you that you're wrong about health care. I'm wanting to have that conversation with you. So don't hear me saying that this abortion issue over here means that I don't have to care about this issue that's really close to home for you. No, I want to talk with you about that, and I want to be creative, and I want to see how we can work together as brothers in Christ to be able to address these concerns. And so I'm looking forward to those, to those opportunities to say, well, gosh, I mean, what, what, what have I missed? What are some of the blind spots that have developed and gotten larger because of my own political views that I now feel free to, to explore? You know, the, the, the light has shone on some of them. And now, like, what am I seeing for the first time? Who am I seeing for the first time? What am I seeing now from a different vantage point? Like you said earlier, Jamar, the, the typical African-American critique of the Republican Party and of white America is a lot more persuasive to me now than it was before. Not because I didn't think it had any merit, but because I just could not have envisioned it was as bad <laughs> as people said that it was. And now, mind you, I've I've done you know my share of reading on civil rights and things like that. So this, I think God had been preparing me for this moment in my in my study of the '60s and '70s and in my living in Birmingham, Alabama, in particular. I mean, I gotta say, I gotta say, guys. I mean, just to just to sort of to 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 shed light on what I'm on what on how I'm dealing with this. We have a situation now in the state of Alabama where the white evangelical governor has had an affair and is mm -hmm. being um and is being held and is being facing calls all i mean he's been disciplined and kicked out of his baptist church mm. okay first of all and now he's being all facing all these calls to resign the speaker of the house a white evangelical republican is currently on trial for corruption of having mm -hmm. taken money from uh from casinos to be able to try to stop gambling from coming into uh, coming into Alabama, we don't have a, a state state lottery. Um, so essentially, it's you'll appreciate this more. Basically, it's casinos in Mississippi yeah. and in Alabama. They're trying to keep the business from getting out. So so he's being alleged to have used a Christian explanation for why he's taken this this uh, dirty money. Mm. We also have a white evangelical Republican speak, uh, uh, chairman of the, uh, the state Supreme Court, 
chief justice of the, of the state Supreme Court, who's also getting kicked out because he's not conforming in this case um, to – uh, you know, he's trying to carve out space for judges to not have to perform civil ceremonies for same-sex co- uh, couples. Well, I may agree with him in certain ways, but the point is, like, he's just not going to be able to get away with this. Okay, that's that's the Republican Party in the state where I live. It's not all bad, but hello, I mean, these are the these are the most visible Republicans in this state. Now let's look at now let's look at this other situation. Okay, so I live in a wonderful community. That's that's um, there are a lot of, lot of wonderful people here, a lot of wonderful churches. It's a very wealthy, prosperous community. Average household income is about $150,000. I mean, we're talking about one of the wealthiest communities in the entire country. Within like 20 minutes of us, you have literally a failed state situation hmm. in Fairfield, Alabama. They are having to shut off the water. Um, because the city can't pay for the water anymore. Bus service has stopped. Um, basically what happened was there was one Walmart, which was more or less the entire sales tax base mm-hmm. for this city. Um, it left for various reasons. The city has no money. We're talking mm-hmm. no fire department, mm-hmm. no police force, no nothing. A failed state. United States of wow. America. People are people are talking about uh, talking about Michigan, talking about Flint. Okay, bad situation mm-hmm. there as well. I'm staring at this situation. I've got good close friends who've lived in Fairfield or who have friends in Fairfield. I have a good friend who's a minister in Fairfield. Like that's my city. That's wow. my community. Those are my neighbors. Our national yeah. political situation isn't going to do anything about that. Yeah. Our national politicians Man. don't care. Hillary Clinton doesn't care about the people there. And heck, she did a campaign stop in that area. Mm, so right. she's, not, she's not caring about this. Um, my, lo- my local government isn't going to be able to care about this. The local government has failed those people. Democrats have failed those people. The state government has failed those people. I mean, and this is a, and this is a community also that was almost universally white through the 60s right. that went through terrible racial turmoil and that whites are certainly at some degree responsible and complicit in what has happened that they can't just they can't just wipe their hands and say yeah when all of us left because of desegregation that th- that yeah we can just blame all the black people for what's mm. happening that's within the lifetimes of a lot of people who live in this city so that's a long answer to your question, Tyler, but like that gives me more than enough opportunity to try to exercise my faith and to try to see represent mm. Jesus and to try to seek some kind of political redress for this situation. And what would it say about me if I were spending my time caring about what was happening between fools like Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump and ignore my brother? and right. sister who is right on the other side of this city. That's good. I mean, that's, that's, so you're asking, you know, how, what am I doing? That's what I'm doing. And, and hopefully I can only, I can only hope that in this sort of repentance uh, process that I can, that, that I can reappropriate my, <laughs> sounds so technical, reappropriate my personal assets <laughs> to try <laughs> yeah. to address energy and money and what and time to try to help my, my brother and sister in need in my own city. Jamar, we got to bring Colin back on just to talk about the South. Man. Just to talk about the South. Like, that's it. Well, so we got to do in the South. a we video series, a blog series that. between us. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> Colin, this has been extremely enlightening, brother. We, we, we knew we had you on here for a reason. You've been really helpful, and it's timely. So thank you so much for your time. I'm looking forward to uh, the TGC um, Women's Conference, which is coming up in a couple of weeks in June. We'll have uh, a couple of our folks from RAND there. And then, of course, the national conference next year, where we'll um, I, I get to do my first workshop at TGC. So, thank you again for the opportunity, and brother, let's let's do this again soon. I love what you guys are doing. I'm happy to help in any way I can, and come on another time. But uh, keep up the good work, guys. God bless. All right. Thank you, Colin. We want to thank Colin Hansen for joining us on this episode of Pass the Mic. You can learn more about him at thegospelcoalition.org and pick up his book, Blind Spots. 
As always, you can learn more about the Reformed African American Network by visiting randnetwork.org. You can also follow the network on Twitter at Rand Network, as well as the show at underscore Pass the Mic. Don't forget to like us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Reformed African Americans. Pass the Mic is a collaborative effort between the Reformed African American Network and Pottery Studios. Visit Pottery.com to discover the highest in quality online audio entertainment. Our producer for this show, as always, is Bo York, and our co-host has been Jamar Tisby, and I've been your host, Tyler Burns, and we'll see you soon on the next... Pass the, the mic. mic. You've been listening to Pass the Mic, a Pottery production. To find out more about this and other shows, visit Pottery.com. That's P-O-D-A-S-T-E-R-Y dot com. This episode is brought to you in part by Ministry Pivot with Russell St. Bernard. This podcast features important conversations with industry leaders such as Nona Jones, Bishop Walter Scott Thomas, Reverend Dr. Nicole Martin, and so many more. Visit ministrypivot.com or on all streaming platforms.